Early man learned that they could preserve food using salt, which allowed people to store food and to transport food. And that made salt valuable, even to where it became a currency. The great Roman Republic built roads to bring precious salt into the city. And the most famous of those roads, the Via Salaria, the road which came from the Adriatic Sea into Rome, was there just for salt transportation. The Roman legions were even sometimes paid in salt. And from the Latin word for salt, we have the word salary. And of course, the human body needs sodium or salt. And yet, too much is toxic. Or is it? It turns out that many, especially in the low-carb community, feel that the recommendations for salt are dangerously low. Today, on 4Q, we'll examine the role of salt in the human body. And while we're at it, we're going to ask if that pink salt or some Celtic salt is worth the few extra dollars you have to pay for it. And finally, we will tell you a story about salt and the founding of a famous clinic. I'm Dr. Terry Simpson, and this is Fork U, Fork University, where we make sense of the madness, bust a few myths, and help you learn a little bit about food as medicine. Many in the low-carb community feel that cholesterol isn't the cause of heart disease. So it isn't surprising that many of those other individuals now don't think that salt is much of a problem. A lot of this has been manifested in a book called The Salt Fix, written by a non-MD, a PhD, whose thesis is that unless you're salt-sensitive, you shouldn't restrict salt. Here's the science. We know that salt will affect blood vessels making arteries stiff. And if your arteries are stiff, you're going to have higher blood pressure. Even an increase in blood pressure of two points increases your risk of stroke by 7% in 10 years and heart disease of 10% in 10 years. So even if you go from a systolic blood pressure of 135 to 137, you're risking an increase in heart disease and stroke. Salt is the thing that affects the vessel's wall, making the arteries stiff. This has been demonstrated multiple times in labs from cells of the artery or in vitro studies. It's been shown in animal studies with mice and rats, but humans aren't mice or rats, and it has been demonstrated in human beings. Perhaps some of the best results were a study where they took people with mildly high blood pressure and provided food for them in identical forms one form had 2,300 milligrams of salt, one form had a little bit more, and one form had even more. The results of that study were very clear. The food, and again, these were identical diets, which had a 2,300 milligram or less sodium or salt, resulted in lower blood pressure. In fact, that 2,300 milligram sodium diet turned out to be the equivalent of taking one blood pressure pill, like lisinopril. Imagine that a diet lowering your blood pressure such that you would not need to take a pill. That's food is medicine. That diet's called the DASH diet. DASH stands for Dietary Approach to Stop Hypertension. And now the DASH diet is considered the first lifestyle intervention that we physicians recommend for patients who have early hypertension. 
Now, this book is called The Salt Fix, and it has a lot of misinformation. In The Salt Fix, it states that we have this natural salt regulatory system in our brains and our tongues, and that we can take as much because that'll turn off or turn on it, how much we need. Here's the problem with that thesis. We know the more salt you eat in your diet, the more salt you are crave. This is how the ultra-processed food makes us want more. I mean, chips anybody? The saltfish also states that countries with high salt intake don't have high cardiovascular disease, and therefore, the thesis is incorrect. He uses Japan as an example. Well, we all know that cardiovascular disease is more than just salt. But let's talk about that. While Japan doesn't have the high morbidity from salt as the United States does, it does have one of the highest gastric cancer rates in the world. And by the way, gastric cancer is directly attributed to salt intake. He cites Korea as another example, but the recent literature shows that South Korea has about a 50% of their population with either high blood pressure or pre-high blood pressure. Then he points out how Latvia has half the salt intake of Japan, but a higher cardiovascular rate. Now, anybody who's been to Latvia will know, or you can look this up. Latvia has a high alcoholism rate, a high rate of smoking, horribly high diets with high saturated fat, high levels of obesity, low levels of physical activity. Once again, proving there's more to heart disease than salt, but salt does contribute to it. In the salt fix, they often state that studies don't share long-term data or poor data, but they misquote the literature because the literature has been very clear. Year after year after year, having a sodium or salt intake of less than 2,300 milligrams a day not only reduces your blood pressure, but prolongs life. He makes a statement that we consume less salt these days since refrigeration because salt was used to be used to preserve foods. However, the USDA statistics show that the salt in our food supply has steadily increased over time. The vast majority of the salt that you get in your diet doesn't come from the salt shaker. It comes from processed foods. Finally, the salt fix makes the claim that one four-day study showed that low salt can actually increase your arterial stiffness, leading to arterial blood pressure, but he ignores that same study showing that that effect goes away after a few days. He also shows spurious data from individuals who are clearly associated with the salt industry showing that salt is actually good for you. The bottom line, salt in excess amounts increases blood pressure, increases the risk of heart disease, and increases the risk of gastric or stomach cancer. So I know if you go to the salt shelf today, you'll see a bunch of kinds of salt. We'll just stick with the table salts. I use kosher salt when I'm cooking meats, but let's talk about table salt like Morton's. It's mined in Utah. Why is there so much salt in Utah? Well, it turns out that Utah was the sea bottom of what was once a very large ocean, similar to pink or Himalayan salt, which is also mined like Morton's, but in this case, it's mined in Pakistan. It's really not from the Himalayas. It's actually a couple hundred miles south of the Himalayas, but the Himalayas just sounds so much better than we're giving you Pakistani salt. And then there's salt that is made by evaporation of seawater. The most common one of these is Celtic salt, but I've also seen Hawaiian salt, French salt, and others where they just dehydrate the ocean water and you have the salt left over. What's the difference in all of these? Pretty much salt is salt. It's sodium chloride. There are some additional minerals found in these, including the concern with some pink salt is there's some 
heavy metals in them like strontium and molybdenum, which can be toxic at high levels. But there's lots of other ingredients. In some pink salt, there's up to 86 other things that you can find, 86 other minerals, but none of them are substantial enough that they would impact your health. And I've had some people worry about the anti-caking agents which are found in salt. That allows your salt to pour out a salt shaker. Anti-caking agents are used not only in pink salt, but in white salt. And the agent that's used most often is called yellow Prussian dye, or the other name is ferrocyanide. Yeah, you heard that word right, cyanide. You know, that famous poison from the movies. But it turns out that ferrocyanide isn't a product that the cyanide breaks down from it in the human body. Now, if you took chemistry 101, you'll realize how ferrous and cyanide are so tightly bound that you don't have to worry about it as an anti-caking agent. You're not going to get cyanide poisoning from salt. However, if you encounter your average latte-sipping English major or someone who graduated from high school without ever taking chemistry, they might be very concerned about it. But it's okay. Let them enjoy the more expensive pink salts and you just enjoy your coffee. Let me get back to the Middle West. Why? I want you to think about the Middle West when the first pioneers were taking over the land and began planting things. They looked at that beautiful black topsoil like black gold. It grew the most amazing vegetables and the most amazing crops. No wonder it's the breadbasket of the world. But what they didn't know was that soil was deficient in an ingredient called iodine. And soon they noticed that their kids, who were eating this amazing diet, were developing these lumps on their neck. Those were called thyroid goiters. And those lumps would get larger and larger. And sometimes those goiters would get so large that people couldn't swallow. And sometimes people would even choke to death and die from the goiters. The only solution was surgery, but surgery in the neck was dangerous. You have the carotid artery and the jugular vein. Many people went to surgery because that was their only option, and many of them died. But there was one surgeon who was known to be a very careful surgeon. His name was William. He loved surgery so much that he sent his sons off to medical school and said, you come back here and practice with me and become a surgeon. And they did. And they even brought some later techniques back to their father, the techniques of Lister, the idea to prevent infection. And they began operating on goiters and thyroids. And they published their results, their first 40 thyroid surgery cases, and they were stunning. They were among the best results ever published. Some people didn't believe them. But soon, people from around the Middle West began to hear that this clinic is where you should go to have these brothers or their dad operate them because they were so safe. They did safe thyroid surgery. But as time went on, it became very clear that iodine was a missing mineral that caused the deficiency leading to these thyroid goiters and they were trying to figure out how to get iodine in people. They tried iodine drops in school. That just didn't work because there were plenty of people who weren't going to school. And someone said, why don't we put it in salt? So they began experimenting. And thanks to the scientists at Michigan State University, they found the ideal ratio of iodine to salt that didn't lead to too much iodine, which will shut down your thyroid, but would allow it to be tasty and palatable and delicious, which salt is. So while putting iodine in salt decreased the goiters, that little clinic's reputation in the middle of Minnesota grew and grew as the brothers brought in other well-trained surgeons 
And that clinic was named after their dad and is there today. That's the Mayo Clinic. And while they're still known for complex surgery, including having one of the better thyroid surgery programs in the nation, the number of goiters in the United States has decreased because we have iodine in table salt. We also, by the way, put iodine in dairy products now. Had to put in a surgical reference after all. I'm a surgeon. Be sure and check out the blog associated with this podcast at yourdoctorsorders.com or also forq.com. This podcast was researched and written by me, Dr. Terry Simpson. And while I am a doctor, I am not your doctor. If you need a medical doctor, please see a board-certified physician, not a functional medicine doctor, not an Eastern medicine type. This podcast is distributed by our friends at Simpler Media, Miss Ali Preston, the pod god, Mr. Evo Terra. Thanks for listening. Hey, Evo, did you know that the DASH diet is really our American version of the Mediterranean diet? Full of fresh vegetables, fruits, legumes, and low in sodium. Which reminds me, did you know that beer really doesn't have that much sodium in it? So, you know, just pass me over that IPA, will you? Wait, so you're saying the Mayo Clinic was not named because they invented mayonnaise there? My entire life's a lie.